0: in chapter 11, and we'll pick up uh, this morning in verse 12. We'll go through verse 26. If you can, please, if you're able, please stand and uh, we'll stand as I read the word of the Lord this morning in that passage beginning in verse 12. Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. And so they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw that the fig tree, they saw the fig tree rather, dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree, which you cursed, has withered away. And so Jesus said to them, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things, he says, will be done He will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Thank you. You may be seated. Please receive the word of the Lord this morning. Mark chapter 11. Apart from God's grace through faith in Christ, no one enters into heaven's kingdom. An honest reading of the entire Bible will leave you with nothing less than that. You might acknowledge scripture as a heavenly message. You might give some assent to the virtue of the promises God makes of a savior. But one thing the scripture is very clear about is that you must actually trust God to do what he has promised in Christ for his promise of salvation to apply to you. It's not enough to be aware of it. It's not enough to be near that promise as you are today gathered together here in this congregation. And there's probably, well there is really no better example of those who were near but who did not believe than ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They had everything by way of God's revelation, and yet they missed, as the nation, they missed that salvation is not by their works, but by grace through faith. And so I think it benefits us, before we really consider this passage that we're looking at, to understand God's dealings with Israel just briefly up until the time of Christ. In short, they were the nation through whom God chose to reveal his redemptive purpose in his Son, and to reveal that purpose in his son, not only to the Jews, but to the rest of the world. And so if we were to sum it up, as, as Paul says in Romans 9, chapter 9 through 11, if I could sum up what Paul says there, that's what I would say. God chose Israel to be the nation through whom he revealed his redemptive purpose in Christ. More specifically, God made a conditional covenant with the Hebrew nation. It was based on the absolute righteousness that God requires of all people if we are to be in his heavenly kingdom. You must be, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, holy as God is holy. And that was the law. That was the law given through Moses. That law enshrined in the Ten Commandments, and then it played out in the ceremonial worship of the people. It played itself out in the, the civil law of the people that God gave, and they understood what was required. They understood how seriously God took that. Everything pointed to the need for holiness to be set apart but it also pointed to their sin, their failure to do that, their constant need of cleansing, their need for atonement, their need for a Savior. God's purpose all along, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, was that the law would be a tutor, a schoolmaster, if you will, someone to emphasize your need for grace here's the law here's what re- is required and you fail to keep it you fail to do it you fall short you miss the mark which is what the word sin means you've transgressed you've gone past what law what the law says your heart is full of iniquity that is evil that's the motivation for your transgressions. That's the reason that you fall short. All people incapable of the heart righteousness that God requires. And so we are sinners who must trust God to graciously provide that righteousness or we must be Punished and punished eternally because our sin is against an eternal God, an eternally holy God. And so when Jesus came to Israel, when the eternal Son of God became the incarnate Son of God and the Son of Man, the one predicted throughout Old Testament Scripture. When he came, Israel should have expected not someone to mediate that old covenant, but someone to mediate the new covenant, a new covenant given to them after they had failed miserably to do God's will, after they had done everything God said they would do in failing to do his will, and were exiled ultimately from the promised land. They should have expected the mediator of the new covenant, but they did not, at least not nationally. The new covenant mediator would be, as we noted last time, this completely righteous prophet, a righteous king, a righteous high priest, all under that new covenant. The great high priest of this covenant, as Pastor John has been telling us about as we go through Hebrews, that great high priest would keep the law from the heart. He would offer his life as the true atonement for sin, as the law demands that sin requires death. and So he offered himself in our place, and he opens the way to God. mediates, if you will, the grace of God to sinners that we need. The scripture says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. And so the nation of Israel clearly did not embrace Christ in this context, as we saw last time at the beginning of chapter 11, our Lord has now entered into Jerusalem. He's, he's come from ministering the past three years plus in the land. He's made his way for the final time back to Jerusalem and for the purpose of dying on the cross. He's proclaimed the kingdom. And he's come a long way and for this purpose. And he's drawn near Jerusalem. He's passed through the little villages of Bethphage and Bethany. And he's come and he's looked around, as we're told, in Mark. And he's turned around and he's gone back now to Bethany to lodge for the evening. Possibly with Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. But Jesus had presented himself as the king, you'll remember, In verses 1 through 11, we saw where he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that's what the Jews expected their king to do. They recalled instantly, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, that their king would come to them lowly and bringing salvation, riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And yet, as they cry out, Hosanna! Praise to the Lord as they cry out, Blessed is the kingdom of our father David, recognizing that the Messiah will come this way, the the king, the truly righteous king. As they praise God and acknowledge that Jesus may be coming in the name of the Lord, what they wanted was an earthly king, just like the Hebrews of old. They did not want God as their king. They wanted a king like all the other nations. And they wanted that king to rule a kingdom for them that was of this world. Not heavenly. Their idea of a heavenly kingdom is, God, you come and rule everything as we would like. But Jesus will later tell Pontius Pilate, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight for me. But now my kingdom's not of this world. The kingdom will come to this world, but it's not an earthly kingdom. They did not embrace him as he presented himself. As he was sent from the Father to be the king of heaven. To open the way. For sinners to actually enter the kingdom. And so when we come here, after Jesus' triumphal entry, as we often call it, on Palm Sunday, he looks around, he turns around, goes back to Bethany for the night. And what we're going to find here is that Jesus has recognized that they really didn't believe in him at all. They didn't receive him as that king. And Mark tells us that Christ curses their unbelief. He cleanses their worship, if you will. But he'll also comfort the few who have true faith. Though not understanding everything about what Christ is doing, nonetheless, they're looking to him to do something more than what the Old Covenant did. I thought about titling this Fig Trees, False Religion and Faith. That's just a working title. I don't know. You can remember that or forget it. It doesn't matter. But I want you to look first at verses 12 through 14 with me and Jesus cursing the unbelief of the Jewish people. Now, Matthew records Jesus' cleansing of the temple first, but he gives no time references. It's more more, uh, thematic or topical, if you will, of Matthew to do that, and that was typical of his narrative. But Mark uses time references, and so Mark's probably giving us the chronology of what happened that day or those days he comes into Jerusalem. That day's over. He went out to Bethany. Now the next day, says Mark. Jeremiah eight thirteen compares unfaithful Israel to a fruitless fig tree. Jeremiah 24, 1 through 10 says faithful Jews are like good figs, very good figs. Unfaithful Jews, unbelieving Jews are like bad figs, very, very, very bad figs. God had made it clear that he was looking for fruit. He made it clear that Israel was like a fig tree. No doubt the Jews, as they remembered Zechariah nine and Jesus riding the donkey, now they remember Jeremiah and they say, you know, here's a fig tree. Or at least the disciples recognize this because they're the ones that see what Jesus is about to do. They've come from Bethany, referring back to chapter 11, verse 11. He's come to Jerusalem now the second day, and we're told in the morning as they go out, Jesus is hungry. I don't eat breakfast much. This morning I ate a little bit of fruit, hoping that would be brain food. We'll see if that works. Most people are probably hungry when they wake up in the morning, though. Jesus was hungry. That's not an unusual or an unreasonable desire to be hungry. It was normal. It's expected. And likewise, we should expect that our Lord, who desired nothing but God's will, our Lord who desired nothing but absolute Trust in God, who himself had nothing but absolute trust in God and His word. It should come as no surprise that he was expecting to see the same thing among His people. God expects that among His people this morning. I think that's in what is indicated by Mark telling us he's hungry. And so he sees a fig tree, and he decides, I'm hungry. There's that fig tree. We're going to learn that he knew that it didn't have any figs. It wasn't the season for that. But I'm going to use this fig tree and my desire for hunger, and I'm again going to teach my disciples a lesson, a vivid object lesson. Another opportunity to use ordinary things to teach the truth about the kingdom. wasn't the season for figs. That's the only reason the fig tree didn't have any fruit. I want you to keep that in mind. It was not the season for figs. The fig tree was not going to have any figs. Jesus knew that. But the tree would have otherwise done, listen, what God created fig trees to do. What did God create fig trees to do? Produce figs. Israel, however, should have had the fruit of faith. When Christ arrived, it was the season for faith. When you hear the gospel, it's the season for faith. God has a right to expect that you should respond in faith. To command even that you respond in faith. That you repent and that you believe the gospel. It was the season for faith, but unbelief prevailed. You say, how do you know that? They're shouting, Hosanna. Well, we read on in the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels, and by the end of the week, they're screaming, crucify him, crucify him, we will not have this man. So they really didn't have any faith when they're shouting, Hosanna. That's just religiosity. That's just acting on what they knew of religious terminology. That's the fruit, if you will, of being exposed to scripture, of knowing about it, and of playing church, as we like to say. But they didn't have any faith. They failed to trust God. The very purpose for which God had chosen them, the very reason for that old covenant was to say, this is not enough, you don't have it in you, and I've not yet provided what you need fully. But I will. You're to be looking for that. I promised you a new covenant. I've promised you someone to fulfill that covenant and to bring you the righteousness you need. You should be looking for him. I don't know how long you've heard the gospel preached in your life. I don't know how how many times you've heard of Jesus Christ, I don't know how many times you've been told you're a sinner, I don't know how many times you've been told he died for your sin, he was buried, he rose again on the third day and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. I don't know how many times you've heard that, but every time was a time to believe it. The very purpose that God has given for which he's given his word is so that you might respond to it in faith. Old Testament saints had less information than we do, but the principle or the requirement was the same, faith in the promise of God. I have a, a fruitless peach tree at home. I planted it years ago with some apple trees and I, I think a plum tree, planted it up on the hill next to the garden that I had. Everything else died but the peach tree and the peach tree lives on. I even buried my little dachshund underneath it. Um, that has nothing to do with it living on, but it's just always been there for 20 years about and it's never produced any peaches. Now, That's mostly because I don't tend the peach tree. I don't keep it up. I don't prune it. I don't spray it with herbicide or uh, anything to ward off the, the various insects that damage it. I just don't tend to it. If I did, it might produce peaches or might have produced peaches. But listen, God tends to his word. He tends to his people. Everything he's decided to do, he's active in bringing about, bringing to pass. And so he tended to Israel, this fig tree, if you will. Sometimes he refers to them as a vine. God tended to them. But they resisted his care. They resisted his instruction. They resisted. Everything he did as a nation. And the time for faith was at hand, and there was no faith to be found except in a handful of disciples, a remnant. And so Jesus' curse, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, is very significant. Israel's unbelief meant they had missed the whole point of everything God had done up to that juncture. They missed it. The old covenant, the other covenants God had made, but that conditional covenant with Israel, that old covenant, as the writer of Hebrews calls it, it pointed to the need for the new covenant and the Savior of the new covenant. And their significance as heaven's representative nation under the law had had run its course because they missed it. In a few decades, as Jesus' cursing of the fig tree and his cleansing of the temple indicate, God's going to completely make it impossible for them to in any way operate under that new covenant in an external way. Everything that that represented would be be taken away. And they would no longer be a nation of witness to God or for God, to the world. The curse of the fig tree graphically predicts this. And Matthew adds that the tree withered away immediately at the Lord's words. The mark explains that the disciples didn't notice it until the next day. I think that Jerusalem and the temple and lay waste to the country. The fig tree withered immediately. The disciples did notice it the next day. God has every right to demand faith in Christ. God has every right to condemn unbelief. And unbelief is what the Lord found when He came to the temple this day. He curses the fig tree, the disciples hear it, and they come to Jerusalem, verse 15 says, and Jesus went into the temple. And He did not congratulate them for the wonderful job they were doing representing Him. No. Now, the Lord came into Jerusalem... Earlier in his ministry, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, John chapter 2 tells us, and he cleansed the temple then. He made the whip of cords, you'll remember, and he began to drive out some of the same type of people that were in there conducting business. But in both cases, whether it's that first cleansing or this last one that we find in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Christ brought a cleansing that drove out what shouldn't be there. He he drove out, listen, what the Jews had come to understand and think about the old covenant, what they really thought of it, not what God intended it to be. So he's he's driving out the people in there that represent that and he's disrupting the activity that represents that. And that's significant because Jesus is driving people out of the court of the Gentiles. Now Mark doesn't say that, but that's the only place where this activity was allowed. And the court of the Gentiles was the only place in the temple compound where Gentiles could come and worship. It was as close as they could get to the temple itself. They were not permitted to come any further. and This indicates how the Jews thought of the Gentiles, right? Remember last week I told you the kingdom they wanted was to assert their ethnicity. It was a kingdom that exalted the Jews and regarded not any other person outside of that external covenant community. Sometimes churches think that way, don't they? We don't want anymore, just us elect few and nobody else should come near and and hear the word and that's a shame. But this is where business was conducted, and it was conducted, I think, intentionally as a slight to the Gentiles. Yes, you have a court, but we're going to use it for our purposes. Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. They were not. Specific mention is made of money changers and those who... ...sold pigeons or doves. The reason for this is that no foreign currency was accepted in the temple... ...by those who governed it, the the ruling party of the Sadducees... ...that would include the chief priests and the high priest family and so forth. They governed all of that. And since you needed animals to sacrifice in the temple... The Jews did, and the Jews weren't allowed to use any foreign currency. The high priestly family, the chief priests, the the Sadducees, they said, well, let's just set up this, this place for the exchange of all that here in the Gentile court. We don't care if it disrupts the Gentile worship. We don't care if it keeps them from coming. We're just concerned with the Jewish people who need maybe have traveled from afar like those coming at Passover at this time. They they couldn't bring all of their animals with them. That would be impractical, and so we'll provide some for them. So pigeons weren't the only things there. There were oxen and sheep, as John's Gospel tells us. But you come, you bring your money. If you have foreign currency, which you probably do, you can... Come to the money changers. There's an exchange rate. We'll make a little bit of money off that. And that's how the high priestly family and the ruling class there made their fortunes quite often. But we'll make some money. You'll get what you need, and you can come and worship the way we would like for you to. They were more interested in promoting business than worship. And so Jesus condemns them for not being a house of prayer of all the nations, or for all the nations, but rather turning the temple into a den of robbers. That's strong language. Here's what you should be. A place where all the nations can come and learn about the one true God. To understand what he demands of those in his kingdom, and to understand the promises of one who's coming to bring not only Jews, but Gentiles into that kingdom. All who repent. All who believe. Instead, it's a place of business. And not a sanctioned business by God. A business condemned by God. A false worship even. A false religion, if you will. As close as they were to the truth, Judaism was apostate. It was false. And the temple had become a den of robbers or a den of thieves, your translation might say. Jesus sees it for what it is. And mind you, he looks at us this morning and he sees us exactly for what we are. We can be externally acceptable but not to God if our heart is not right with him by faith in Christ. Now, this immediately catches the attention of the religious leaders. Now we're told that both parties are interested. It's not just the the, the Sadducees and the chief priest among them, who are mad because Jesus did this, but the scribes, most of them came from the Pharisees. And so everybody's interested here. We find out also that that other political parties are interested, the Herodians and all that, and, and other places in what Christ is doing. But here, the emphasis is the chief priests and the scribes, the ruling leaders of the religious organization, if you will, And they began to seek a way to destroy Christ. Why? Because he's saying, your religion stinks. You have everything you need to know to worship God truly in the way he's desired and to be this light to the nations that you should be. And this is what you do. that's a slap in the face, isn't it? That's a big slap in the face. And they want to destroy him. That's not a new feeling for them. This has been building all along. They're very angry that Jesus begins to teach these things. Verse 17. And so they did this because they were afraid. Why? Why would they be afraid? I mean, after all, they had power. This is just some non-informed, uh, let's say, Jewish rabbi. He's, however, not come up through the, the rabbinical tradition. He's not been educated in that way. He's not affiliated with them. He's this itinerant preacher, this itinerant rabbi, teacher, Who is he? But they're afraid of losing power. They're afraid the people will understand what he's saying, that their form of the temple worship was the wrong form. Their worship of God was not the worship God desired. When you hear the truth of the scripture and it cuts to the heart as the writer of Hebrews tells us, the word of God's living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When you hear the word of God and it cuts to the core of who you are, does it make you angry? Because you're not Worshiping God through Christ the way God says. Not only by believing the gospel, but then living for the gospel. Living that gospel out. Following Christ in that way. Does it make you angry? Or does it make you correct your way? Well, it made the Jewish authorities angry. They didn't want to lose their power. It was rooted in that form of temple worship. Now, I want you just to notice here in passing that Jesus is unflinching, he's undeterred, he's, he's not afraid of that. Scripture says when evening came, after he had finished teaching, after he had finished making this statement, he went out of the city, presumably back to Bethany, to lodge there again for the night with every intention of coming back the next day. And he does. But like Matthew, Mark clearly links the cursing of the fig tree, listen, and the cleansing of the temple together. And Jesus effectively condemns the failure of the Jews to worship by faith under the Old Covenant. However, the Old Covenant and its worship did not end because it was bad. He's not condemning the Old Covenant. He's condemning the unbelief of the Jews in relation to that covenant. You didn't believe what it taught. You didn't believe what its types and its shadows pointed to. You had the compass, you didn't follow it. So the old covenant and its worship didn't end because it was bad. It was always good. The law is just, the scripture tells us, and holy and good. What is good does not cause us to sin, it just highlights our sin and the Worship that should have been practiced should have kept that going and emphasized all of that. Here's my law. Keep it. When you fail, you need to be cleansed. If you want to come worship, ceremonial cleansing. Symbolic. It it tells you you need to be sanctified. You need to come. You need to bring a sacrifice. You need atonement. Old Covenant was always good, but it was always incomplete. Listen, it was always temporary. Always. It was not the means to God's desired end. It just pointed to something greater. And so... It ended because Christ fulfilled its shadows and types. The better covenant, the eternal covenant had come. And if you didn't embrace that, then you were condemned. So that's what Jesus did. He cursed the fig tree and he says this form of worship, not just your, your misrepresentation of it, but this form of worship is going to go away too. It's not going to be significant anymore because what it foreshadowed, has come, Christ, everything about Jesus. God's purpose for his kingdom remains the same, but the grace promised would not be mediated the old way. Now, if you are a Jewish person who knew that what Jesus was saying was right, you may not have understood it all like the disciples, but you knew that it was right, You were looking for something else. You may have grasped part of it. You needed clarification, but you're hearing about this. The fig tree is cursed. It's representing the unbelief. That seemed to be clear to them. Jesus comes and cleanses the temple again, and he does it immediately after cursing the fig tree. Well, if you're one of the disciples who has true faith, you're beginning to worry, aren't you? Let's face it, when we don't understand Scripture, even preachers, we struggle and we study and we're trying to learn so we can adequately and accurately bring the truth of Scripture to you, we're always worried we misunderstand something. And therefore, we'll miscommunicate something. Or we're all as believers worried we won't be living as God wants us to live. And we worry is the Lord frowning on my life right now? Is You hear something in Scripture, maybe you get confused about it, and you, as we tend to do, want to lean toward the more legalistic side of things and think, oh, you know, maybe I should do this and maybe I should do that. I, I don't want to be condemned, but that's not what the new covenant's about. The new covenant is that God has done for you what you could not do for yourself. And he's done that in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. So God offers comfort to us. And I, I really think that's what verses 20 through 26 are all about. We can extrapolate things about prayer from that. But I really don't think Jesus is trying to instruct us on how to pray or what to ask for in prayer, anything like that. Mark reiterates about the fig tree, and he tells us it withered away to its roots. So it withered away immediately, Matthew tells us, but Mark says, when the disciples came and they saw it, this fig tree was not just dying, it was dead completely. Dead to the root. And the idea here is that of complete destruction. Matthew compresses the cursing of the fig tree and the noticing of the fig tree. He compresses that, and it seems like he's saying it's one event, but it's, it's not. It, Mark's telling us they noticed this the following day. And so the point is that the disciples heard the curse, They had some time to think about it. They witnessed the cleansing of the temple. Now they see the effects of the curse, and they get the connection. They get the connection. God required a faith, a belief, that the Jews had failed as a nation to embrace. And the disciples, I guess, are wondering, I think rightly so, are we a part of the curse? Are we a part of the curse? And Peter points out what they were all noticing. The tree is totally withered, Lord. Look. It's vitality wasted away. No appearance of fruit. Not in leaf anymore. Not from a distance looking like it might be something good. No, it's withered. It's dead to the root. Israel had an appearance of godliness, as Paul told Timothy, but they denied its power. And Jesus makes it clear that far more than just his temporary cleansing of the temple worship was coming. I mean, I would be very concerned if I were Peter. And when we hear the word of God, and we may not understand everything about it, but it might seem to be applying to something, we get worried, something in our own lives. And we need to come to the Lord, I think, like Peter and say, Lord, I see this, it concerns me, what does this mean? And I want you to notice what Jesus says to Peter and to all of them. He doesn't say, well, you better go back and study all that again and get it right and then you come and we're going to have a conversation about that. No. What does Jesus say? Have faith in God. Have faith in God. That's In this section here, in these verses, that's the key phrase. Not about prayer. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. You being right with God, you not being condemned before God, depends on your faith. In what he's going to do, not in your absolute complete understanding of it and in doing everything that the old covenant required. In other words, living a perfect sinless life, because you're not going to. It doesn't mean you don't desire to please God and that his will should be the chief thing that you strive for, but you're never going to do it perfectly. You need the gospel. You need Jesus Christ to mediate the grace of God to you. And your part is faith. And even that, we are told, is a gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. Have faith in God. Though good and for a purpose... The old covenant, its ceremonial worship was ending, but the faith God had always required in his promises had not changed. Now, I'm not going to labor much on the remaining verses, and I know you're saying, great. But I just want to say this. Jesus is using hyperbole he's exaggerating as a as a literary device if you will that's what hyperbole is and he's highlighting the need for a confident faith what how does confident faith always express itself in confident prayer right Confident faith. Having faith in God to do what He said He would do. Not belief in God, but believing that God will do what He says. Just as He has revealed it. Believing God always results in confidently coming to the throne of grace. Again, the writer of Hebrews tells us, chapter 4, verse 16, Because of Christ, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Your time of need is always. Sometimes you have need more than others from your perspective, but God sees you as always being in need. And he graciously provides that in his son. I don't think we need to make more of verses 23 through 26. And in fact, some of your translations may not even have verse 26. Some New Testament manuscripts do have that. Speaking about forgiving others as we come to the Lord in prayer and so on. But Jesus isn't saying we can call on God to do some outlandish thing. Casting mountains into the sea is metaphorical language. Again, it's hyperbole. To say that our faith in Christ means that the Father knows you, the Father hears you. You, listen, are not cursed. You're not cursed. Does that not make you happy? You are not cursed. No, you may not understand everything about the Bible. You're constantly learning. As were the disciples. But you're not cursed if you have faith in God. If you believe the promise. If you believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator of this new covenant in which God says, I will do for you what you can't do for yourself. I'll give you the righteousness you need to enter my kingdom, and I will take care justly of the sin that has kept you from the kingdom in the first place. By faith in God also, we should remember that We are here by the grace of God alone. You're forgiven by grace, therefore graciously forgive others. I think that's what Jesus is saying in all that. It's really the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Those who by faith receive the grace of Christ in the new covenant confidently come before God in faith and they pray and they pray with understanding in that regard now there's nothing but condemnation outside of faith in Christ that's always been the case but in Christ there's life for Jews and Gentiles John 3 The Lord Jesus said in verses 17 and 18, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because He's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Full light has come. It's not a shadow. It's the substance of all that God foretold. That doesn't mean that Jews can't be saved. And Paul belabors this point in Romans chapter 11. Don't think for a moment that because they've fallen in the sense of no longer being a national witness for God. Don't think for a moment that God has cast away his people. Not at all. I want to read for you a passage in Romans. First, let me read Romans 11 and uh, verses 11 and 12. I say then, have they, referring to the Jews, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And aren't you glad? Because that means you and me. Now if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? God, says Paul, as he goes on to explain, has not done away at all with the Jews. Romans 15 and verses 8 through 13. Listen what he goes to what he goes on to say. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. He came to the Jewish people for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, and he goes back to the Old Testament, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. And so Paul says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen. There's not a believing Jew. There's not a believing Gentile who is cursed. It's not possible. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. God has made sure that we know what he requires and he's made sure that we can't that we know that we can't produce it on our own and that is righteousness. We need help and Christ has come to do for us what we can't do for ourselves as I said earlier the law is good but the law condemns Christ brings grace and as we observe the Lord's supper now as is our custom That's what we're being reminded of. When you partake of the elements, when you eat the bread and you drink the fruit of the vine, the Lord is saying, have faith in God. The Lord is saying, I have sealed the new covenant in my own blood. What you need, I've provided. You need to trust me. There is no curse, not at the Lord's table. You draw near, and the Lord is reaffirming his covenant, and you are reaffirming your faith. So I ask you now to bow your heads with me. i going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll have our closing hymn, and then we will partake of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Our Father we thank you again for this your word so clear it is it flows from Genesis to Revelation with all the wonder of your revelation that we may know what it is that you are doing in the world that you have created all things and you have allowed for sin but you have done that that you might provide for redemption, and that in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much for us to consider, Father, in the Old Testament and in the New. And Sometimes we may get a bit confused and we might blend things together where they shouldn't be blended and misunderstand one thing in light of another. But what we need to know is that all who believe your promises in Christ are not cursed, but we have eternal life in Him. And I pray you'll reassure our hearts of this this morning, if indeed we have turned to Christ in faith, believing that He has lived a sinless life, that He has died the sacrificial death on the cross for us, and that by faith in His name, We are reconciled to you, justified in your sight through our Lord and our Savior. In whose name we pray, amen.